show where we discuss the many ways a career can intersect with academia. I am one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and my guest this week is Jalal Awan. Jalal is a PhD candidate at the Party Rand Graduate School, where he works on policy analysis. He received a Master's of Science in Green Technologies from the University of Southern California, where he was also a Fulbright Fellow. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Engineering and Technology from Lahore, Pakistan. In this episode, Jalal and I talk about his work testing air quality monitoring systems, in which he uses small coffee mug-sized instruments to measure air quality. We talk about things like battery-operated and autonomous vehicles, technology policy issues in the coming decades, which Jalal predicts will be largely issues of inequality, a recent diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI survey, Jalal is helping process at RAND, and much more. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Jalal, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I wanted to start um, with talking about what you're up to at RAND, and in particular, your air quality monitoring project, because to me, it's a really cool example of the intersection of policy, technology, engineering, environmental science, environmental justice, and probably a bunch of other things. So can you talk a little bit about that project and the bigger kind of scope of what you're up to as a PhD student at RAND? Sure. Um uh, so a little bit about my background first. I am in my fourth year uh, of uh, my PhD program in public policy at the Pardeeran Graduate School. Um, my background is electrical engineering, and my master's was also in uh, engineering, energy systems. Um, so I had no idea about what the policy world was like prior to joining uh, RAND. Um, so this was new to me. And my dissertation topic, which you just mentioned on uh, um, using uh, low-cost air quality sensors for a granular neighborhood level uh, profile of particulate matter pollution um, is very much in line with, I would say it's 70% engineering and then 30% policy oriented work. Um, so I, I guess I was lucky in finding that uh, kind of niche where I could use my engineering uh, background uh, to evaluate uh, uh, an issue that has uh, really dire implications for uh, us, namely the air that we breathe. And is that most of the project is in the LA area? Is that correct? Yes. So this started. I joined uh, Rand in 2017. Uh, and this project uh, started in 2018 around the time when uh, California was having its usual fire season around October, November. Um, so what we did was we deployed uh, these low-cost coffee mug-sized uh, air quality sensing devices at, uh, at the residences of some uh, researchers who had volunteered to install them at their uh, place. Uh, so it was it was a convenient sample in Santa Monica, uh, all the five zip codes of Santa Monica, and then about uh, a dozen sensors in Pittsburgh. Rand has an office in Pittsburgh too, so we had another sample uh, in Pittsburgh. And as you know, the geographies and climate and environmental factors in, uh, in LA and Pittsburgh vary quite a lot. Pittsburgh being a, a more of an industrial uh, area. Uh, than Santa Monica. 
So our hypothesis was, was we'd find uh, discernible uh, differences in it, not just air quality, but the impact of environmental variables like relative humidity and temperature and other factors on particulate matter pollution. And did you find the differences that you expected? Hmm, that's a good question. I cannot say for sure uh, uh, right now because I'm in the process of analyzing that data. But yeah, broadly, there are discernible differences, uh, particularly in relation to relative humidity uh, and temperature and as well as the built environment uh, that impacts uh, pollution profiles. And obviously, some some of these are known, uh, like the closer you are to freeways in Los Angeles, the more exposed you are to particulate, not just particulate matter pollution, but also SOX and NOx uh, emissions. Can we define um, SOX and NOx for everyone? So SOX is sulfur oxides um, and NOx is nitrous oxides. And it could be nitrogen dioxide or um, N2O or NO2. Uh, and these are uh, pollutants uh, mostly uh, linked with vehicular uh, emissions and also power plant uh, emissions. Um, and the reason why we are looking at particulate matter, uh, PM 2.5, um, is primarily because of uh, uh, the widespread use of these uh, sensors for PM pollution monitoring uh, all over the world. In fact, like if you... Um, there are uh, a bunch of websites that have like visual plots of where these sensors are, um, and those community science models are are gaining a lot of traction. Um, and my my idea was to to kind of scientifically explore um, the use of of the use reliability and applicability of readings from these sensing devices or a very granular level. Uh, so we found discernible differences uh, between the five zip codes of Santa Monica. Hmm. So the devices that you guys are using to measure, are they were they already developed or did you help develop the measuring sensor itself? No. So we, we are using uh, pre-developed um, uh, devices from um, a manufacturer actually based in China. Uh, the... The method that these devices use, most of these devices use, is pretty uh, similar. It's based on uh, light diffusion uh, or light scattering. So there's a constant laser beam focused on uh, a sensing element. And as particulate matter um, uh, particles accumulate or uh, uh, form between the sensor and the uh, laser emitting uh, device, um, and there's a there's a calculation that, uh, that takes place inside the sensing element to to kind of indirectly uh, quantify the level of particulate matter pollution. We did also um, put together. So the, 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 there's a, the, only only uh, about four or five basic elements, including a microcontroller that goes into these devices. Uh, so we did uh, order individual elements and put together a sensor with a 3D printed casing uh, in our lab here at RAND. Um, and that came out to be about uh, four times cheaper than the pre-assembled devices. Oh, wow. So how many sensors in total are you monitoring? 
So the data that we are getting uh, from Santa Monica is from uh, 18 sensors. Um, and, you know, there, there are a bunch of problems with, with those. As, as uh, They're not as rugged as industrial systems and tend to uh, drift over time. Uh, which needs calibration. So I, I, I would say effectively we have about 15 sensors working in Santa Monica and about a dozen in Pittsburgh. Okay, awesome. And I guess, so it sounds like the big difference in your study and like the existing PM 2.5 monitoring is that you are you have a higher resolution and you're kind of testing in different neighborhoods. And you mentioned there's five zip codes in Santa Monica. And so presumably those zip codes are going to have different income levels. Are you seeing any relationship between the zip code income level or something like that and the amount of pollution that you're observing? That's a, that's a great question. And I think um, there was a University of Washington study on... Uh, um, uh, consumption versus exposure. So uh, the types of foods you consume, the types of cars you drive, all of that contributes to environmental pollution, right? Uh, but your exposure um, could be very different. And they concluded, if I'm not wrong, and don't quote me on that, you can look up the University of Washington study and they had an NPR interview. Um, uh, Latino and African-American populations were uh, disproportionately affected compared to whites. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but uh, orders of magnitude, uh, 10 times or more affected uh, when you compare their consumption versus exposure. So this this is the idea. My, my uh, Current research is on performance evaluation for these devices. I'm not uh, trying to find uh, associations between uh, socioeconomic status or income or health-related disparities and uh, environmental exposure. That would be an entirely different but very interesting study. Yeah, but I guess if you got all of these sensors really online and, like, low cost, then I guess ideally maybe everyone, you know, or like maybe we have a, a really high resolution air quality sampling like all over the country or something. Yeah, that that, that would be ideal. And I think that's where kind of the, the um, state of the technology is heading towards. Um, once you have reliable uh, accuracy matrices for these uh, devices, um, they, they sometimes even outperform EPA uh, sensors, which are multi-million dollar, huge uh, uh, devices. Uh, but the, the problem with those is they're uh, situated in, uh, let's say, if you talk about LA, there's one in downtown LA, and you basically use machine learning algorithms to extrapolate measurements from those devices uh, to the neighborhood or zip code level. And sometimes those extrapolations are not as accurate as, you know, point devices. And that's kind of what we are finding, too. Yeah. So what, you know, can you give like a ballpark cost of one of these coffee cup size sensors? Um, so back in 2018, when we bought and I should look at the recent uh, prices, I'm sure they've gone down. They were around $200 uh, per device. Yeah. And the do-it-yourself project that we did at the RAND lab uh, that cost us about $40 to order uh, sensing equipment from Alibaba and just putting it together on like a demo project. 
So is that something that like someone, if they were interested in their backyard air quality, could they like make their own sensor and set it Absolutely. up? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there, there are a ton of tutorials and we kind of prepared a process where we, we, we looked at the entire process that we went through uh, from putting the devices together to um, coding for the actual PM uh, measurements uh, and then the prototype hardware casing because you have to uh, you're installing them outside and they have to be rugged enough to um, you know withstand um, rains rains actually never happened in LA so that wasn't a big concern <laughs> um, but yeah they, they, they even like high schoolers can 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 put together uh, devices given the right material and instructions Awesome. Maybe we can link to some of that those instructions because I certainly would be really interested in making one for myself. Def definitely. I lived uh, next to the 405 in Los Angeles for like three years and I definitely thought a lot about what am I breathing in and I wished that I had a, a backyard air quality monitoring system. So, yeah. yeah in LA and in particular during the fire season, which is kind of uh, now, <laughs> We have a couple fires raging across California and Oregon. Uh, the air quality gets really badly affected. In fact, I was reading a, a New York Times article about uh, air quality in New York getting affected by uh, these fires on the West Coast. So something you mentioned a few minutes ago is that when you started at RAND, it sounded like you hadn't thought that much about policy and I'm so I'm really curious I guess how you um, decided to go to Rand and how you ended up there for a PhD I think it goes back to my master's degree program at USC uh, which as you know is downtown LA um, and not too far from from Rand but I never realized that Rand had a graduate school uh, a PhD degree awarding uh, graduate school. Um, but I was doing my master's thesis research on uh, uh, cost benefit of uh, autonomous battery electric vehicles versus gasoline powered vehicles. Um, and I came across a bunch of studies from brand researchers on the topic of autonomous vehicles, mostly around vehicle safety and uh, environmental implications of uh, uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, and that's how I got in touch with a couple of researchers there working on energy and climate related issues. Um, and, and that's kind of how I, I you know, came to know about the program. And at your master's thesis, did you, or in your program, um, did you, like, do you have strong opinions, I guess, on like, are autonomous electric vehicles much better from an environmental standpoint? Oh, wow, that was a long time back. <laughs> but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll try summarizing. Um, so we looked at different scenarios, like different uptake scenarios uh, for autonomous vehicles. And as you know, back, back in 2015, we weren't really uh, even talking academically about platooning or about uh, driverless cars. Um, now Tesla and Ford and GM and all of them are competing in, uh, you know, level five autonomous vehicles, uh, which basically means uh, a no driver in the seat. Um, so 
what we found under different uptake scenarios was um, that when you look at the entire life cycle, um, uh, overall emissions for uh, battery electric vehicles, depending on the region that you're talking about, we obviously looked at um, just a subset uh, of the United States, uh, which is Los Angeles. But uh, depending on where you're looking uh, at, there are uh, environmental benefits over the entire life cycle. If you factor in mining cost of batteries and then uh, the use phase and then the final disposal uh, phase. So in a life cycle analysis, what you basically do is uh, try to evaluate the overall carbon impacts from cradle to grave uh, for a gasoline engine versus an autonomous car. And it's interesting that like in in India or China, for example, if, if you are powering the vehicle through coal-based uh, power generation, um, you are uh, not really doing a great deal to benefit the environment, regardless of uh, the autonomous technology or the, the however efficient your battery system is. Um, but if you have renewable powered uh, charging stations, let's say, uh, then there, there there is a huge difference. But overall, uh, battery electric autonomous vehicles by far are better in uh, under different uh, scenarios. Um, uh, compared to gasoline-powered uh, vehicles. Yeah, cool. And it's nice to have have you kind of spell that out because I feel like, I guess I definitely assume that battery-powered vehicles are much better, but then you hear a lot of people say, oh, but the batteries are like quite bad from the mining. And so it's really interesting to make the distinction that it really depends a lot on how your electric power is generated, if that is actually a... Yeah. And, and in addition to that, the, the overall life cycle, you have to, if you, if you get a battery electric vehicle from a showroom today and a gasoline powered vehicle today, and just look at, uh, uh, just compare vehicular overall carbon emissions uh, during the manufacturing uh, and mining phase, a battery electric vehicle would probably be worse than a gasoline vehicle. But once you've driven enough, there, there, there are break-even points like 12,000 miles, 40,000 miles. Uh, after the use phase, uh, you can kind of extrapolate, uh, let's say if you, if you consider 15 years is what we consider the effective life of a vehicle. Uh, if you consider the entire effective life, use and then disposal, uh, then, uh, you know, battery electric vehicles uh, uh, outcompete by far. And that's the most climate-related studies. It's it, 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 You have to factor in long-term effects to uh, kind of see the uh, actual picture of how uh, good or bad a certain technology is for the environment. Yeah. And do you think that the the reason some of these like newer technologies at the showroom level, like right right off af after manufacturing, is the reason that they can perform less well just because we haven't been manufacturing them for like 100 years is and we just don't have the like manufacturing technology as tidy, I guess, and efficient? That and it, it goes further back than that. Like for, for the raw materials uh, themselves, uh, you know, lithium mining uh, is not, uh, it, is, is, it, it's a pretty new industry and it's very uh, uh, environmentally damaging. 
but with with uh, newer technologies with uh, carbon capture solutions um you 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 can kind of make make that process more efficient so you're right yeah the reason why um they're not as uh, environmentally beneficial uh, straight out of the showroom is you're only looking at uh, mining and manufacturing related emissions which might be higher for um, a battery electric vehicle but over the entire life cycle which is what you're concerned with climate change is incremental um and you have to look at things uh from a future horizons perspective yeah awesome um how did you end up at usc and getting involved in kind of this green technology world it it was serendipitous my sister went for her fulbright um at the university of maryland college park um back in 2013 and uh, she i was at that time working at a power plant back home in pakistan in uh, south of uh, pakistan uh, and my sister encouraged me to apply uh, i actually half heartedly applied at first and then and didn't go past the interview stage for fulbright and then reapplied the next year and got the uh, fulbright exchange scholarship for usc um so yeah that was kind of how i switched from my engineering uh field job to um energy systems uh, more theoretical work cool and can you talk a little bit about the fulbright program cuz i think a lot of people are familiar with the name and that it's like a very prestigious fellowship but might not know exactly how it works oh thank you um thanks for your comments about the uh, fulbright program i uh, yeah a lot of people actually confuse these uh, exchange scholarships fulbright is primarily for cultural exchange uh, and yes the fulbright program uh, itself uh, goes way back to 1946 when senator uh, james william fulbright uh, proposed a cultural exchange program um between uh, the citizens of the united states and the rest of the world and so the fulbright program ever since has been working both ways so uh, american scholars go to other countries uh, on uh, uh, cultural exchange programs uh, of varying durations from 6 months to uh, phd's and postdocs um and then the other way around too so people from other countries come over to the united states um and it's a very it's a very communal uh organization and we have a lot of events uh, uh with fulbrighters from all over the world how do you have any idea how many fulbright scholars there are per year or fellows what's the right term um fulbright scholars i'm not entirely sure but i would say upwards of uh, 1000 uh in the united states from all over um and i i i'm not entirely sure about how many uh american scholars go abroad for uh, their full break uh, it's a great learning experience being immersed in a different culture and and uh, you know looking at it from within um there's no substitute for that 
Yeah, and I really like, I mean, I guess something that I've learned since I met you is that, yeah, there's this really active community. Like, so even though I guess you're technically like finished with your Fulbright, you're still really actively involved in the LA community. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of activities you guys do? Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff after Fulbright uh, happens to be voluntary, uh, you know, activities and uh, plans. And, but the State Department does support us in organizing uh, events for Fulbright scholars. I'm currently uh, serving as vice president of the Fulbright Association here in LA. Um, so we look after the LA chapters, uh, scholars based mostly um, in San Diego, San Francisco, um, and uh, Los Angeles. Um, so yeah, we have various cultural events. We just recently celebrated Eid, uh, um, you know, with with barbecues and stuff. Mostly Turkish food because we happen to have a lot of Turkish scholars in town. Oh, how fun! <laughs> And can we um, explain what Eid is, just in case people aren't aware? Sure. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so Eid is a, a holy festival, a Muslim festival, uh, about two months after the month of Ramadan. Um, uh, it, it's it's uh, when you um, so back home you slaughter um, uh, an animal, a sacrificial animal. And um, there's there's a, a distribution. A third of it goes to the poor people around you. A third goes to your friends and family, and then you keep uh, a third of it, which generally uh, goes into barbecuing and fun stuff. Wow, how fun! Yeah, and I I guess it's it's really nice to hear that there's like a really communal aspect because just speaking as someone who moved to another country without like a a built-in like work or school community um yeah it can be just kind of tough to move somewhere new so it's really nice that you guys are like providing that for each other when you are in your Fulbright the state department is very good at organizing enrichment seminars is what they call them in all of the different cities and having uh, scholars come together and share interests and it's a it's a great way to collaborate not just on research but also on uh, personal uh, interest. There was a recent Fulbright scholar who received the Pulitzer Prize uh, for journalism. Uh, she did some investigative journalism work uh, in China on the Uyghur internment camps. And uh, she, she presented her findings at a Fulbright forum, which was uh, super interesting. So you, you randomly come across people like that, which is, which is great. So earlier this year, you did a few months stint as an intern. We call it externship as opposed to an internship where you're basically embedded in a community uh, rather than working for the community. Mm. Earlier this year, you did an externship in Sidka, Alaska. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how it kind of differed from what you're doing usually at RAND um, and a little bit about what you learned. Sure. I was in Sidka from uh, around the middle of April until the end of May. So about a month and a half and Sitka is an, I, I don't know if you've visited, but it's an amazing place to visit. Very picturesque, a super small city of 10,000 people, um, uh, but very uh, politically engaged and 
a progressive minded community. I um, was there as part of the community partnered externship program at Party Dan. Um, so going back a little bit, we have three policy engagement streams at Party Dan. Uh, the first being research uh, and analysis, which is uh, pretty much uh, what you know policy research uh, entails, data-driven uh, policy analysis. Uh, the second stream is technology applications and implications, uh, which is primarily the area uh, where I work uh, in. And then the third stream is community uh, partnership uh, and engagement stream. Uh, which is where um, fellows uh, are embedded in uh, communities right now. We're partnering with LA, Sitka, and Pittsburgh. Um, and then uh, fellows from Party Rand uh, spend a couple months in that community working with a partner organization um, on uh, any topic that, that the organization is focusing on. Uh, so my uh, externship was with the Sitka Conservation Society. Um, it's a small, uh, fourteen people nonprofit um, uh, working in Sitka since 1967 on uh, climate-related issues, primarily on the preservation and protection of the Tongass National Forest. Um, and uh, I was basically uh, there working on. Uh, a solar project that they had, uh, a solar facility that they were commissioning in a, in another remote island where they uh, had an artist retreat center, which was um, not functioning because it was off grid and there was no electricity uh, there. So the technical part of my work there was electrifying it using solar uh, PV panels. Uh, and then I was also working on looking at the building back better agenda under President Biden, the infrastructure plan and the American Rescue Act, um, and looking at funding opportunities from uh, the federal and state levels for the Sitka Conservation Society. So identifying funding opportunities in uh, food uh, security, energy resilience, uh, primarily those, those two uh, domains. Wow, cool. And were you like helping directly advise on like how to, for example, get this um, artist um, community like onto the grid, um, like as an electrical engineer? No, sorry, I, I should I should have clarified it a little bit more. So it was um, <clears throat> designing an electric uh, off-grid electric system. Uh, for this facility um, and procuring materials for that, uh, basically procuring and salvaging because they're very resource constrained. So you have to be a little, uh, you know, resourceful in terms of identifying materials. Um, a lot goes into a, a solar setup, including batteries and solar panels and cabling, wiring, uh, circuit breakers, and uh, all of that uh, fun stuff. Um, so yeah we we actually did the entire project in in less than the estimated cost uh which was great but i i was part of the um uh, electric schematic design and design for uh the solar system so not actually uh, involved in the practical installation which i think is happening as we speak 
Wow. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah, I really wish I had like that kind of expertise. It's just like so practical and awesome. <laughs> Again, there are, there are do-it-yourself tutorials on solar installations <laughs> also on the internet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's funny. I just feel so um, separated from like the more practical, like DIY things like that, just because I didn't, I didn't have, I guess I am like such a classroom learner or I have historically been such a classroom learner. And those just weren't the things that I was learning in the classroom. So I get like really excited when I find out that you can just like do these things if you if you have the knowledge and so it's really cool also that there's just like practical tutorials i was actually talking to a friend who is also an engineer and switched to policy uh, he's working in amsterdam now uh, for a policy energy consulting firm about how irrelevant that all the theoretical stuff that we learned in engineering was in practical life <laughs> so a lot of it is very uh, you know, easy to, to learn, even if you don't have a, uh, an engineering or a quantitative uh, uh, background, because a lot of the work we do is uh, based on manuals and, uh, you know, uh, instruction material that is uh, freely accessible. I think back in the day, uh, you know, when electricity and the entire infrastructure was very new and developing, uh, there was a lot more that went into designing electrical systems or designing transmission, distribution, generation um, for an electric power plant because a lot of the stuff that went into it was electromechanical uh, rather than transistor-based. Now everything is computerized and you can basically, you know, learn from a 10-page manual uh, exactly you know, what goes into uh, designing uh, solar systems or power system for that matter wow i did not know that there had been this like huge kind of leap in technology that had like changed that oh yeah absolutely um moore's law uh states that i i think the the number of transistors in an integrated circuits doubles every year or every couple years uh, and that has been a consistent empirical finding. It's not a law, it's more of an empirical finding. Um, and that's how we went from, uh, you know, electromechanical systems to solid state systems to integrated circuits. Um, and then computers, Pentium 1, 2, 3s in the 2000s uh, to quantum computing where we're at uh, uh, now and I, I feel like the next uh, couple decades are going to be very interesting in terms of technology and emerging technologies whoa whoa man and i'm really sounding ignorant right now but <laughs> yeah, i i I, uh, I also you know uh know whatever i do mostly from uh, out of interest and out of uh you know youtube videos which again you can also uh you know partake in <laughs> freely available <laughs> um as someone who's like thinking a lot about like technology and policy at the same time like what are some of the big i guess challenges that you think might happen in like the coming decades so, like you mentioned that you expect a big 
a continued increase in the coming decades with computing? Like, what kind of problems do you think are going to be the real policy hotspots coming up? That's a great question. I think a lot of the a lot of concerns around emerging technologies are, um, are on on and basically can be summed up as equity considerations uh, because a lot of the social and economic benefit of these technologies, whether it's AI-based systems or um, Internet of Things devices, sensors in agriculture, and then all sorts of uh, emerging technologies, uh, they, uh, without adequate policy support, they would, um, the, the winners and losers will, be, um, you know, the winners will tend to be people who are already uh, at a higher socioeconomic status, uh, just because of the way that technology is uh, um, diffused in society. A lot of other implications would be social and environmental uh, implications of, of uh, emerging technologies. And then obviously there's the age-old threat that has kind of magnified in the recent years around cybersecurity and privacy. If I were to look at a particular technology, I would use uh, some sort of a framework like uh, policy analysts love using frameworks. There's a steep uh, framework, social, technological, economic, environmental, and political uh, implications. So you've been... Uh, things under each of those and look at how the risks and benefits uh, accrue over time. Do you feel like there is like a, are, there are a few things that people could do, like policymakers could do to help make things, for example, more equitable as like emerging technology happens? Or like, is that kind of going to be like a big concerted effort from like all levels? Or are there like a few things we can do? Does that question make any sense? How, how to address uh, inequity-related problems before they arise uh, using policy levers. And I guess after they arise, how do we address the problems that already exist using policy levers? That's a good one. I think like what we are taught right from the start at, um, during this PhD program and in general in any good policy school is to identify the right uh, research questions. Even before the issue arises, you have to conceptualize uh, what the research uh, question would be. And then the methods and analysis and all the fancy results and stuff uh, comes after that. So I, I think in order to address equity considerations, it's, it's, it's imperative for policy researchers to address the right questions. So how, how policy research at RAND works is we have clients who come up with issues um, let's say uh, homelessness as a problem for LA County and then they'll uh, ask us to design um, methods to address that issue and the first step towards any policy problem is asking the right questions so in terms of homelessness I think it, it, it's useful to ask uh, who tends to get affected most uh, by homelessness how does the problem exacerbate? How does the criminal justice system contribute to this problem? Um, and then you kind of identify policy levers that you can use to address those questions. So I think asking the right questions is key. There's obviously no one size fits all uh, solution to, to these complex problems.
earlier today, you were telling me that you've been spending your weekend um, anonymizing and processing a DEI survey within RAND, which uh, is quite interesting. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are thinking about those kinds of issues and maybe even generating those surveys. And do you have any, uh, I know that you mostly can talk about the results directly, but do you have any, I guess, findings from putting together the survey and um, kind of thinking about those issues at RAND? Yeah, thanks for that question, Joyce. Uh, I was involved in designing the survey for the Pardeet and Graduate School, um, on uh, primarily on DEI, but also uh, related to to just the general climate and atmosphere uh, in the school as perceived by the students and staff. Uh, Rand uh, does a pretty elaborate job at yearly surveys. They hire an external consulting firm. Um, uh, not 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 a lot lot of times that that Rand has to rely on external consultants, but yeah, DEI related uh, work under the HR department is uh, uh, an exercise that involves uh, external partners. Um, so for the school survey, we what we did was we identified we first of all started by. Uh, like any good policy researcher would, uh, started with the literature review, um, uh, non-systematic, but kind of, you know, including gray literature and other uh, sources on how other organizations or how other schools um, look at DEI issues and how, uh, if they have publicly accessible uh, past surveys on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and it turns out over the past um, couple of years, actually, um, a lot of institutions, including policy schools uh, like Chicago, Harvard, uh, UC Berkeley, um, and others, uh, UCLA, um, have piloted surveys within um, uh, within their their student body uh, on how students perceive diversity and equity issues. Um, so we kind of uh, used that as a template and came up with um, five or six unique dimensions or domains that we wanted to look at. So things like, um, um, I'm blanking out on, on the actual domains. So performance enablement and management support, um, whether it's, you know, physical or verbal harassment related support or, or um, support that directly deals with um, the academic part of party. Um, and then other domains like work-life balance and, uh, you know, all of these are kind of are at the intersection of um, diversity and equity related uh, concerns. Confu uh, communication, sorry. Um, how policies are communicated before they're implemented or whether or not students feel like they're involved in the uh, policy making process at the uh, institution, whether it's a, a top down or a bottom up approach. Um, and so then we designed a few indicators or measures um, on a sliding Likert scale. Uh, so strongly agree to strongly disagree uh, scale, which makes it easier for respondents and, uh, um, you know, is, is useful uh, when you're analyzing results from uh, uh, from uh, large surveys like that. 
I, I won't say large. It was about a 40-question uh, survey. Um, but uh, we actually did have a really good response rate, uh, about 50%, which is, which is uh, great for a uh, you know, survey. Next question. Next and worst question to ever ask someone in the late stages of their PhD. Um, what kind of things are you thinking about doing next? And um, yeah, what does the future hold for you? Well, I'm taking a break and traveling to Montana, <laughs> like we talked about before. Um, uh, yeah, I think I, I'm the kind of person who does much better under pressure than uh, without pressure. And a PhD tends to be a very staggered marathon kind of a process rather than a sprint. Um, so I, I am phasing out, I'm keeping uh, some time to myself before I really dive deep into my data and start my analysis part. Um, as far as the future, I think I'll be working uh, on my dissertation this summer and um, I, I plan on hopefully finishing by uh, fall next year. Um, yeah, I, fingers crossed for that. I'm my, just done with my independent study and uh, uh, finalizing methods for my uh, first paper on performance evaluation for air quality sensing devices. I'm lucky to have a great committee who is very supportive and they have really good applied experience in the field. Um, so hopefully... Uh, I'll, I'll make more progress uh, over summer and after. Yeah. And do you know what you're going to do after you graduate? Or do you know what you would like to do? I don't know. Actually, I still have my options open. I would love to work in a similar um, uh, work environment as uh, uh, Rand and in a in a in a policy researcher uh, capacity on energy climate related uh, policy, um, but I, I'm open to to opportunities both uh, in and outside the country. Um, so yeah, international development has always been uh, an area of interest. I did a summer uh, internship back during my masters at the United Nations Development Program in New York. Now, that was an interesting experience, but I, I feel like now I kind of prioritize private nonprofit consulting firms more than, um, you know, big umbrella organizations like the World Bank or the UN. Oh, and why? Did, did Was your experience at the UN just something like, oh, I want to try something new or like, oh, this isn't working as well as I hoped? Yeah, I guess I had a lot of uh, assumptions about the work that goes on uh, in international organizations like the UN. Um, uh, but I, I, I feel like uh, a lot of the on-the-ground uh, work actually happens uh, with smaller organizations uh, with, with, with more direct impact and more tangible impact. Uh, policy analysis seems to be, uh, it's an 
it's an art and a science, but it's uh, also uh, kind of frustrating uh, at some point when when you're all you're doing is desk research and you're not really seeing it implemented. Uh, but for smaller, more nimble, more agile organizations, um, I think they have very direct uh, questions that their clients have and they help uh, solve them and they see them uh, implemented, see their solutions or recommendations implemented in real time, um, which which seems exciting uh, to me. Yeah, yeah, and I really like how you put that too, that like, yeah, the the more nimble and smaller an organization, or the smaller an organization is, basically, the more nimble it can be, and actually, like, not only research the problem, but maybe even like see it, you know, the solution coming in. So, yeah, yeah that's sure you, you, Yeah, you've probably seen that in your uh, research too. Like, uh, yeah, no, that's that's exactly what I love about my current job is that it actually feels like we're kind of getting to a solution sometimes. Okay, Jalal, well, I really appreciate your time, and it is always fun to talk about green technology and policy especially, so um, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always, and thank you for being on the show. Likewise. I'd love to stay in touch. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. You'll hopefully be hearing more from Jalal, and don't forget that he'll be on the job market in the next year. Please follow us on our social media pages and we'd love to hear from you guys.